Then I shall bring upon the nations a clear language by Rav Yaakov Medan. God said to Avram, Go away from your land and your birthplace and your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I shall make you a great nation, and I shall bless you, and I shall make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I shall bless those who bless you, and those who curse you I shall curse, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. So Avram went as God had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Avram was seventy-five years old when he left Haran. The Torah's opening verses about Abraham give no reason for God's revelation to him. We are introduced to him at midlife. He is already 75 years old. We are left with several questions. What is the beginning of the story? Why does God choose Abraham and send him to walk about in the land? In what way is Abraham different from the 20 preceding generations, all of which angered God? And even if we succeed in unearthing the story of Abraham prior to God's revelation to him, we must still ask, Why does the Torah not explain why God chose him? Since the Torah provides no reason as to the selection of Abraham, we must turn to Chazal. The Midrash recounts two stories concerning Abraham's life during his first 75 years. The first, Haran died before Terach, his father. Rabbi Chia Barberia said in the name of Rav Ada of Yafo, Terach was an idolater. Once he went off to a certain place, and he left Abraham as shopkeeper in his stead. A person came who wished to buy an idol. Abraham said to him, How old are you? The man replied, Fifty or sixty. Abraham said, Woe to this man who is sixty years old, and he must serve an idol created just yesterday. The man was ashamed and went away. Another time a woman came, bringing a bowl of meal. She said to him, Take this, offer it to the idols. Abraham got up, took a hammer, smashed all the idols, and placed the hammer in the hand of the biggest of them. When his father returned, he asked, Who did this to them? Avraham answered, A woman came and brought them a bowl of meal. She told me to offer it before them. I offered it before them, and one said, I shall eat first. Then another said, I shall eat first. The biggest among them got up, took a hammer, and smashed them. His father said, What nonsense are you telling me? Do they then have any understanding? Avraham answered, Do your ears not hear what your mouth is saying? In the second Midrash, They took him and handed him over to Nimrod, the king. He said to him, Worship the fire. Avraham answered, Shall I then also worship water, which extinguishes fire? Nimrod said to him, Worship the water. He answered, Then should I also worship the cloud, which bears the water? He said, Worship the cloud. Avraham answered, Then should I also worship the wind, which disperses clouds? Nimrod said, Worship the wind. He answered, Shall I then worship man who endures the wind? He said, You talk too much. I worship only fire. I am going to throw you into it. Let the God whom you worship come and save you from it. Haran was standing there. He said, Either way I shall be safe. If Avraham wins, I shall say, I am with Avraham. If Nimrod wins, I shall say, I am with Nimrod. When Avraham entered the fiery furnace and was saved, they said to him, On whose side are you? He told them, I am with Avraham. They took him and cast him into the fire, and so he was burned with no chance of bearing children, and he came out and died before Terach his father. Therefore it is written, Haran died before Terach his father. Before explaining the Midrashim, 
Let us first say a few words about our basic attitude towards Chazal's teachings. Chazal are not storytellers, and obviously anyone who understands Chazal's teachings literally is a simpleton. The purpose behind Chazal's narratives is also not to convey ancient legends, but rather, principally, to interpret the Torah. The source for any narrative by Chazal is usually to be found in some prior biblical incident. Let us explain. In many instances, the Torah is cryptic and fails to recount details of events that represent the reason for things that we read about in the text. So it is in our case. There is no explanation for Terach's sudden departure from Ur Kastim, nor for God's selection of Abraham. Chazal, as biblical commentators, come to explain that which is opaque. For this reason, they create legends which fill the gaps in the text. In our case, as in many others, our question is, upon what do Chazal base their narrative? Why do they choose to recount specifically this story about Abraham, or some other story about Yaakov? It seems that Chazal follow the well-known principle, the Torah text elaborates in certain cases and is brief in others. Wherever there are gaps in the biblical narrative, Chazal compare the character or subject under discussion to a parallel biblical excerpt. This comparison provides the basis for a filling in of the picture, to create a sort of photo montage that completes the missing pieces of the puzzle. If we try to trace Chazal's sources for the stories about Abraham, we arrive at two biblical narratives. The story of Gidon, son of Yoash, smashing idols, is the inspiration for the first Midrash quoted above, while the episode of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the fiery furnace represents the inspiration for the story of Abraham's own trial of fire. What causes Chazal to connect these stories to the life of Abraham? It is this question that we shall investigate in this shiur. It happened on that night that God said to him, Take your father's ox and another ox seven years old, and destroy your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah that is upon it and build an altar to the Lord your God at the top of this strong point, where it is level. Take the second ox and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah which you will cut down. So Gidon took ten men of his servants, and did as God had commanded him. And because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the city awoke in the morning, behold, the altar to Baal was broken, and the Asherah that was upon it was cut down and the second ox had been offered as a burnt offering upon the built-up altar. They said to each other, Who has done this thing? They investigated and sought out, and it was said, Gid'on, the son of Yoash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Yoash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken the altar to Baal, and because he cut down the Asherah that was upon it. And Yoash said to all those who stood against him, Shall you then fight for Baal? Shall you save him? Let anyone who pleads on his behalf be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him fight for himself, for his altar is broken. And on that day they called him Yerubal, saying, Let Baal fight against him, for he has broken his altar. This story is remarkably similar to the legend about Abraham. Gidon breaks his father's altar, used for idolatry, corresponding to Abraham's destruction of the idols belonging to Terach, his father. The question is, why Chazal pair up Gidon and Avraham, carrying over the story from one to the other? What is the basis for this comparison? It seems that the parallel between Avraham and Gidon is based upon the story of the War of the Four Kings, since in many respects that war fought by Avraham is similar to Gidon's war against Midian. First, the number of fighters. In Parashat Lech Lecha, we find an astounding military scenario, 
How could Abraham take only 318 men to fight against a mighty alliance of four kings with a vast number of soldiers? A similar question arises concerning Gidon's fighters. They number a bare 300 against a massive army of 150,000. Second, the course of the war. Abraham's battle tactic is, he divided himself and his servants against them by night. This was calculated to confuse the enemy forces and to exploit the element of surprise to create panic in their camp. This tactic is especially effective when implemented against an alliance of different kings, where the allied armies are unfamiliar with one another. The classic example of such a battle is to be found in the story of Gidon, who comes upon the enemy forces with three groups of soldiers in the middle of the night, exploiting to the full the ensuing panic in the camp comprised of soldiers from Amalek, Midian, and Bnei Kedem. Based on this parallel, we may assume that Abraham too, like Gidon, used the element of surprise in the middle of the night to startle the enemy. Since their camp, too, was comprised of forces representing different kings, this created chaos. In the dark, the soldiers mistook identities and fought each other, eventually fleeing in all directions. Third, the purpose of the war. At the conclusion of Gidon's pursuit of the kings of Midian, we discover the reason for it. He said to Zevach and to Talmunah, Where are the men whom you killed at Tavor? They said, Like you, so were they, with the appearance of the sons of a king. In other words, Gidon was trying to establish what had become of his brethren who were killed at Tavor, apparently on their way to call the men of Ephraim to war. Similarly, Abraham pursued the kings in order to find out what had happened to Lot, his nephew. Fourth, Abraham and Eliezer versus Gidon and Purah. Rashi quotes the Gemara, asserting that Abraham and Eliezer alone prevailed over the four kings. 18. Our sages taught, There was only Eliezer. The 318 refers to the numerical value of his name. This Midrash is most surprising. Is it not impressive enough that Abraham destroyed the camp of four kings with the help of only 318 men? For what reason do they reduce this number to Eliezer alone? The meaning of the text never contradicts the literal reading. We cannot deny the explicit verses teaching that Abraham wages war against the kings with the help of his servants. Therefore, what Chazal are trying to teach seems to be that although 318 men came with Abraham, Abraham and Eliezer alone would have sufficed to win. This type of message is certainly reminiscent of the story of Gidon and Purah, his attendant. It happened that night that God said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hands. If you are afraid to go down, go with Purah, your attendant, towards the camp. Listen to what they say, and then you will be strengthened to go down into the camp. So he and Purah, his attendant, went down to the outskirts of the armed men of the camp, and Gidon came, and behold, a man was telling his neighbor about his dream. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. A slice of barley bread was rolling about in the camp of Midian, and it came up to the tent and struck it, so it fell and was overturned so the tent collapsed. His neighbor replied, This can mean nothing else but the sword of Gidon, the son of Yoash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. When Gidon heard the teller of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for God has given the camp of Midian into your hands. The story of Gidon and Purah reminds us of the battle of Michmash, in which Yehonatan, son of Shaul, and his servant, succeed in dispersing an entire camp. Since Chazal draw a parallel between Gidon's battle and that of Abraham, we may conclude that Abraham went down to the camp like Gidon, 
or Yohanatan later on, and therefore they teach that Abraham descended with Eliezer alone. These similar elements are the basis for Chazal's parallel between Gidon and Abraham, in light of which they raise another point of similarity. Just as Gidon started his rebellion by smashing his father's altar, overcoming any fear of standing against an entire nation and placing God's altar as an alternative to that of Baal, so Abraham shattered his father's idols and introduced the alternative, worship of God. As mentioned above, the story of Abraham's trial in the fiery furnace is inspired by the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, recounted in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an idol of gold, sixty amot high and six amot wide, and erected it in the valley of Dura in the province of Babel. Then Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to an inauguration of the idol which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald cried out, To you it is commanded, O nations, peoples, and tongues, at the time when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the nations, peoples, and tongues shall fall and bow down to the idol of gold which Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever will not fall and bow down shall immediately be thrown into the midst of the burning furnace. At the time when all the nations heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the nations, peoples, and tongues fell and bowed down to the idol of gold which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At that time, some people of Kastim came near and accused the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar replied and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not worship my God, nor bow down to the idol of gold that I set up? Now, if, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you shall fall and bow down to the idol that I have made, well and good. If you do not bow down, at that moment you shall be cast into the burning furnace. And who is the God that can save you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this regard. If he so wishes, our God whom we worship can save us from the burning furnace and from your hands, O king. And if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not worship your God, nor do we bow down to the idol of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the appearance of his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he answered and commanded that the furnace be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded the most valiant men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning furnace. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw these men, over whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their garments damaged, nor had the smell of fire passed over them. The story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah represents convincing evidence that Chazal's stories are sometimes borrowed from biblical narratives, since it is almost certain that the source for the second Midrash is biblical. The story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah opens with a giant golden idol, six diamot, about twelve stories high. This was no tower reaching to the heavens, but rather a huge image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Such an idol would be an object of great admiration. The king's subjects would gaze at it with their heads bent backwards and their hearts raised towards their father in heaven. Not to mention them in the same breath, the sight would be reminiscent of Moshe lifting his staff at the top of the mountain, with Bnei Israel gazing at the upraised staff and subjugating their hearts to God. At the sight of the idol, a concert is performed. At a single moment, all the musicians begin to play, and at that same moment all the nations, peoples, and tongues bow and prostrate themselves. 
This image cannot but remind us of the story that we read in this week's parasha. It was that the whole world was of one language and of the same speech. However, there is a clear difference between the two stories. The episode of the Tower of Babel starts off with a single language that ultimately splits into many languages, many nations, and many peoples. While Nebuchadnezzar's idol aims to unite the diverse nations, peoples, and tongues into a single entity. Nebuchadnezzar's status is something new to the world. No one before him ever attained such a position of absolute power over the entire world. A world that is ruled by a king such as Nebuchadnezzar raises the most difficult question of faith. Who is the king of the world? Perhaps God had truly chosen Nebuchadnezzar. In the story of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's aim is explicit. He wants to nullify God's rule. In the preceding chapter, Nebuchadnezzar dreams of a great idol, its head fashioned from gold, its neck and chest from silver, its abdomen from copper, and the lower part of its body from brass. At the end of the dream, God's kingship comes and replaces the idol made from these perishable substances. In response, in the next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has an idol fashioned altogether from pure gold, so as to show that it is not God's kingship that will replace the idol described in his dream, but rather his own kingship that will last forever. What we see is a sort of dialogue between the idol that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream and the idol that he creates. The significance of the dialogue is a battle between God and Nebuchadnezzar. God appears in his dream as the king of all the world, but even then, in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar declares that God may be king in the dream, but he, Nebuchadnezzar, is king in reality. Instead of an idol that has only a head made of gold, Nebuchadnezzar makes an idol that is fashioned altogether from gold so that people will bow before it and rebel against God. Indeed, were it not for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he would have succeeded. God's agents, representatives of the Jewish nation, stood firm and spoiled Nebuchadnezzar's vision, until ultimately the king himself is forced to acknowledge the truth. At this point, God's clear victory over the kingship of Nebuchadnezzar finds expression. In fact, Chazal teach that when he saw how he had been defeated by God, Nebuchadnezzar praised and extolled him to such a degree that the ministering angels wanted to silence him, because no one in the world had ever praised God as Nebuchadnezzar was doing now. Having reviewed the Midrash of the story of Nebuchadnezzar, let us now re-examine the story of the Tower of Babel and reconstruct Chazal's process of photomontage in the story of Abraham. The sin of the generation that built the Tower of Babel is not stated explicitly in the text. The Torah only describes their initiative. They said, Let us build for ourselves a city, with a tower reaching up to the heavens, and let us make ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over all the earth. The verses convey the impression that the main problem concerned the city that they wanted to build. The city is mentioned in the story more often than the tower, and at the end we read, So God scattered them, and they ceased to build the city. While Chazal indicate that the fundamental sin of the generation lay in the construction of the tower. Either way, when God sees the city and the tower, God said, Behold, they are a single nation, and they all have the same language, and this is what they have begun to do. Now nothing will be withheld from them of all that they have planned to do. But what is it about the unity of the generation that is so bad? Isn't unity under any circumstances usually a good sign? While the literal commentators, Rashbam, Radak, Ibn Ezra, Chizkuni, and others, explain that the sin lay in the desire to build a tall tower, in the spirit of great and fortified cities to the sky, Rashi, based on Chazal and Midrash, understands the sin as concerning the construction of a tower, whose top reached up to the heavens. To his view, the people of that generation actually wanted to reach the heavens. They said, He can't just decide to take the upper worlds for himself and give us the lower. We shall go up to the heavens and strike him with axes. 
Perhaps Chazal based their interpretation on the connotations of the word tower, migdal in Tanakh. It usually indicates a battle fortress, an observation point. And if the top of this tower would be in the heavens, then it would be meant for the purposes of waging war against him who dwells there. But it is more likely that Chazal's view is based on the linguistic connection between the story of the Tower of Babel and the preceding story of Nimrod. Cush bore Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty person in the world. He was a mighty hunter before God. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before God. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. Out of that land came Ashur. He built Nineveh and the city of Rehovot and Kalach. It appears that the kingdom of Babel lasted only a short time. This was the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom before he left there, following the episode of the Tower of Babel. This being the case, we should seek the sin of the kingdom of Babel, the generation of the Tower of Babel, in the person of the ruler of that kingdom, Nimrod. Chazal teach us that the people of the Tower of Babel were wicked descendants of a wicked ancestor. They were the children of Adam, who himself sinned against God. Taking his lead from this Midrash, Ramban interprets the sin of that generation was that of heresy, hinted at in the words, and make for ourselves a name. But one who understands the meaning of name will understand their intention, as expressed in their words, and make for ourselves a name, and know the extent of what they tried to achieve by means of the tower, and understand the entire issue. For they thought up an evil plan, and their punishment, that they were divided into different tongues and dispersed to different lands, was measure for measure, for they were spreading heresy. Their sin was similar to that of their ancestor. The corruption of the land and the dispersion came because of their heresy. They were punished by God's great name. And this is the meaning of God's expression, to go down, as it was in the episode of Sodom. One who is wise will understand this. The Ramban fails to explain in what way this generation was heretical, but the style of God's claim against the builders of the tower would seem to lend weight to what the Midrash and Ramban are saying. Following the sin of Adam, we read, The Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and bad. Now he might put forth his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat from it and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from Gan Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Following the sin of the Tower of Babel, we read, God said, Behold, they are a single nation with one language for all, and this is what they have begun to do. Now nothing will be withheld from them in all that they have planned to do. So God dispersed them from there over the entire world, and they ceased to build the city. Why is God concerned about man's power once he knows good and bad? Rashi explains, Now perhaps he will put forth his hand, since he will be immortal. He will likely mislead the world and claim that he too is a god. It is precisely the same danger that existed concerning the generation of the Tower of Babel, whose project was meant to reach to the heavens. Their king, Nimrod, would sit at the top of the tower, and from his elevated throne in the sky he would rule all of humanity, which was all one nation and of one tongue, and he would tell them all that he too was a god. According to what we have said above, based on Chazal's interpretation, the expression, a tower reaching to the heavens, is no exaggeration. The people of that generation wanted literally to reach the sky. We must then ask, were they idiots? How could they think that they could actually build so high? But the sky is not a blue curtain hanging somewhere in infinity. Throughout Tanakh, Shamayim, the heavens, refers to the cloud level, the line representing the border between the upper world and the lower world. At the beginning of the story, we read of how man discovered bricks and mortar. This enabled them to build taller and better buildings. 
Constructing a tower that reaches cloud level is not an impossible task. We may assume that at the top of the tower there was supposed to be a balcony where Nimrod could sit and look out over his kingdom. All would look upwards to him while he would gaze upon them from amidst the cloud, together with the rays of the sun that would radiate from around it. The significance of such a position is altogether godly. Nimrod's subjects would look up towards the cloud of his glory, passing before him like a flock of sheep. Indeed, descriptions such as this exist in historical records. Various kings ruled over the entire world and attempted at certain stages to eternalize their names and become eternal kings, admittedly not through constructing towers, but through other technological means. This was the purpose of the mausoleum in Moscow, which turned Lenin and Stalin into immortal beings. The same phenomenon occurred during the period of Mao Zedong in communist China, and Saddam Hussein had the same ambition. All of these are hinted to in Rashi's words, since he will be immortal, he will likely mislead the world and claim that he too is a god. From the story of the Tower of Babel, we learn something of the nature of the unity that existed in that generation. All had the same aim. This was not one nation, Am Echad, but rather, as in Stalinist Russia, a nation of one, Am Shel Echad. They were not of a single tongue, Safa Achat, but rather of the tongue of one person, Safa Shel Achat. The builders were not of one aim, Etzachat, but rather of the aim of one, Etzachshelachat, of Nimrod, the mighty hunter who ruled over them. The collective consciousness, the collective initiative, and the collective thinking reflected not a unity and harmony of opinion, but rather the brutal and tyrannical coercion of a single individual, who thought and planned on behalf of everyone. This ruler, like other such rulers throughout history, was bloodthirsty. He brought about the unity of thought and belief in a single idea, by means of a terrifying furnace into which anyone who dared to think differently would be mercilessly thrown. If this is the type of unity that is proposed, then dispersion and division are preferable. Therefore, God's response is, God disperse them from there. It is better for all of humanity not to be subjected to the all-encompassing power of a single autocrat. Rather, every person in every nation should choose his own ideals. We are left with one more question. In the story from the book of Daniel, we see how Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah spoiled Nebuchadnezzar's plan. Having drawn a parallel between this narrative and that of the Tower of Babel, we are left looking for someone to spoil Nimrod's plan. And who is our candidate? To answer this question, let us examine the end of the story. Terach lived seventy years, and he bore Avram and Nahor and Haran. And these are the generations of Terach. Terach bore Avram and Nahor and Haran, and Haran bore Lot. Haran died before Terach, his father, in the land of his birthplace, in Ur-Kastim. Avram and Nahor took wives. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and the father of Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terach took Avram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, the son of his son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, wife of Avram, his son, and departed with them from Urkastim to go to the land of Canaan. They went as far as Haran and sojourned there. Terach lived two hundred and five years, and Terach died in Haran. It is clear to us from the end of Parashat Noach that the birth of Avram represents a turning point in relation to the ten preceding generations. After the list of ten generations, the Torah suddenly begins to detail a new genealogy. Terach was seventy years old, and he bore Avram and Nahor and Haran. And these are the generations of Terach, Terach bore Avram and Nahor and Haran, and Haran bore Lot. The Torah leaves many questions unanswered. Why did Terach behave as he did? 
Why would a person whose life was based in Orkastim get up and leave his country and birthplace and head for the land of Canaan? Several hypotheses exist to explain this issue. Rav Yolbinun writes in his article, The Hebrews and the Land of the Hebrews, that Terach's family was a family of merchants, therefore they wandered from place to place. He maintains that Avram's journey to the land of Canaan was actually a combination of two journeys. It was a continuation of the journey started by Terach, his father, and at the same time a journey at God's request. Rav Mordechai Breuer, in his book Pirkei Breshit, writes that the Torah gives no explanation for Terach's journey to the land of Canaan, because in truth it lacked any reason. It was an initiative in the direction of Eretz Yisrael, inspired by the divine ideal that extended to those generations. We reject these explanations and propose that the juxtaposition of the journey to Canaan with the episode of the Tower of Babel lends support to our claim. God scattered them from there over all the land, and they ceased to build the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, for there God mixed up Balal, the tongue of all the land, and from there God scattered them over all the land. The impression that arises from these verses is that some event took place in the land of Babel, as a result of which everyone was scattered, and they wandered to many different places. Indeed, this is told to us explicitly in the story of Nimrod. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. From that land Ashur emerged. For some reason, Ashur was forced to leave Babel. The reason, apparently, is the story of the tower. Just as all the other nations emerged from Babel and wandered to other places, Terach also left Urkastim and set off for Haran. Let us now try to investigate further the matter of this scattering. The Torah itself presents the scattering as a punishment for having built the tower, but in Parashat Azinu we are given a different reason. When the Supreme God gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he placed the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the children of Israel. This verse reveals another explanation for the dispersion. It was all intended so that Abraham would reach the land of Canaan. He placed the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the children of Israel. If we try to combine these two contradictory reasons, we discover that the Torah is describing the two poles of the same idea. At one end we find Nimrod, who wants to rebel against God, and at the other end we find Abraham, who calls in God's name. For Nimrod, the dispersion was a punishment. God scattered them from there. While for Abraham, this was an instance of divine guidance. He placed the boundaries of the nations according to the number of the children of Israel. Abraham, then, is the opposite pole, and it is he who overturns Nimrod's plans. Abraham, the Hebrew, Ha'ivri, is on one side, Ever Achad, while all the rest of the world, in other words, Nimrod, is on the other side, busy commanding everyone to bow and prostrate themselves to an idol. It is a short step, then, to complete the comparison between the story of Nimrod and that of Nebuchadnezzar by placing Avraham in the role of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Another king built a city with a tower reaching to the heavens. We read in Yeshayahu, I shall sing now to my beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard in a fruitful hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted a good vine and built a tower in its midst. The beloved here is the same beloved that we find in Sher Shirim. It is Shlomo, builder of Jerusalem and the temple. Shlomo did not build with the intention, heaven forfend, of using it as a base to wage war against God. On the contrary, he built a house so that God would dwell in it. Its stones did not reach the heavens, but its essence and purpose certainly ascended there. We read in Malachim, You shall hear the prayer of your servant and of your nation Israel, who will pray towards this place. You will hear all the way to the place of your dwelling, to the heavens. You will hear and you will forgive. 
Like Nimrod, Shlomo also wanted to forge all of humanity into a single nation with a single tongue. But unlike Nimrod, he tried to do this not by means of a fiery furnace, by sowing fear and terror, but rather through love. The Yerushalmi states, It is written, King Shlomo loved foreign women. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai said he loved them literally, in other words, for prostitution. Hananiah, the son of Rabbi Yoshua's brother, said, For it is written, You shall not intermarry with them. Rabbi Yossi said, For the words of the Torah and for a sacrifice under the wings of the Shekhinah. Through the covenant of marriage, Shlomo sought to bring the entire world to the tower, the temple, to bring them to belief in God. Even this unity is not proper in God's eyes, even though it came not from fear but rather from love, and Shlomo himself was punished with dispersion, the division of the kingdom, with each man to your tents, O Israel. This unity was not successful because boundaries and levels became blurred owing to the urge towards immorality. But that hoped-for unity will come about not out of immorality nor out of murderous intentions, out of a reign of terror. This unity, when it happens, will be in accordance with the vision of the prophet Svanya, who witnessed Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power and who presented a faith-based alternative. Then I shall make all the nations into a clear tongue to call out all of them in God's name, to serve him together. Indeed, the world is destined to speak a single language and to be of the same words, with all the nations and tongues gathered around a single tower, all coming to Jerusalem to bow before the King, God of the hosts. Then God will be king over all the world. On that day, God will be one, and his name one.